So I'm not sure how many of you would consider yourself bakers or people who cook. I am not either of those things, which is why a few weeks ago I was, or not a few weeks ago, a few years ago, I was very excited when Christina was making these cookies that I walked into the kitchen and was able to offer her insight. And what she was doing was she was making these, uh, <laughs> these creamsicle cookies. And if you're like, what flavor is that? Think like the orange push pops. You guys remember those things back in the day? And so Christina's going to make these and she's like, I know you're going to love them. And so part of, uh, so she has the bowl that she's going to put in the KitchenAid. It was all homemade. And so she's putting the ingredients into the bowl, and she's going to mix it. And so I walk into the kitchen to, at the part where she's supposed to be zesting an orange. So she's supposed to be zesting an orange, and you put the orange zest, you know, in the cookie dough, and it tastes like it. And so I walk in the kitchen. She's got an orange in one hand and a potato peeler in the other. And what she's doing is she's taking the potato peeler, we didn't have a zester, and was uh, just cutting chunks off the potato, or the, the orange, did I say potato? Orange. She had an orange. <laughs> she had an orange in a hand of potato peeler, and she's, ch- she's cutting off chunks of the orange into the cookie dough. And I'm like, I don't know what zesting means, but I'm pretty sure it's not that. And so she, I Googled, I'm like, yeah, you're supposed to, it's like finely grated things. And so should we get our, our cheese grater? And she starts actually doing the zesting that you're supposed to do. And I'm trying to get these chunks of orange peel like out of the cookies because I'm like, what are you, it's not going to dissolve? Like it's going to be there. And so long story short, I get most of them out, although some of the cookies still had the, the orange peel in it because you knew when you bit it, you're like, oh, this is gross. And so you spit it out. Now, I share that story uh, because as gross or as even, even the cookies that had the orange peel, although they were not as good as the ones that didn't, they were still good. You just had to spit it out. And as Adam was up here earlier, today we're going to be talking about sex. And I just want to put this out here, that God's design for sex is good and it is life-giving. And we talk about why that's the case often. Last week, we talked about God's design for sex. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about this question, and that is, is God pro-sex? And what we're going to find is that the answer to this question is yes, I'm going to give it away. But here's my experience, that you do not have to follow God's design for sex to enjoy it, uh, for it to be a pleasurable experience for you, although it may may lead to pain and regret later on in life. But at least in the moment, it typically is a good experience. However, you could be missing out on what it actually, the better experience. Like it could be that you are having sex outside of God's design, although it's pleasurable and it's good. What if I told you? that there's even a better way, that it is even more enjoyable. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. I want to caveat by saying this. I I am not in any way trying to cross a line or to provide any shock value for the sake of doing that. Uh, And so I'm not trying to do that at all this morning. I just want us to have an honest conversation guided by Scripture. Uh, What does it look like for us to have sex the way God designed it? And I would say if we're okay with, or maybe not okay with, but if we can deal with movies and TV shows and sex being all over our culture and are okay with it, then we've got to be able to have an honest conversation about it in the church, especially if God's the one who designed it and knows the context in which it is most fulfilling in our lives. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If not, there's a black one somewhere around you. Feel free to use that one. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take that one home. And as our gift to you, we are in a series called Masterclass, where we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians, written by this man named Paul within 20 years of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And we're calling it Masterclass because he hits on a whole sort of topics in this letter to the church that was in Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece, showing us how the gospel actually applies to everyday life and all areas of our life. Specifically, in this, to this morning, we're talking about sex. And so I want to give you two disclaimers as we begin. Uh, first is this, uh, chapter 7 
7, 8, and 9, Paul is responding to uh, the Corinthian church had written Paul a letter asking him questions about certain things. So in these chapters, he's addressing questions that the Corinthian church had written them. However, we do not know what they asked. And so there is some difficulty as we read these chapters because we don't know the question that he's exactly responding to. So in this question, for example, uh, it's a purely local question that has to do with a specific situation that we are not familiar with. However, we can still still glean uh, principles from this passage to apply to our life. And so although he's answering a specific question to a specific context, there are still things we can learn, uh, learn from it. And secondly, if you get uncomfortable talking about sex in a public setting, just remember, it could be worse. You could be me talking about sex to a congregation of which your mother is a part of. Okay? So I have everybody be this morning. So here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says this, uh, now in response to the matters you wrote about. So again, he's answering a question. We don't know what the question was exactly, but he's answering it. He says, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex, but because sexual immorality is so common, in other words, uh, sex outside the, the confines of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman, each man should have sexual relationships, sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. Now, why is, what is Paul saying here? You might notice in verse 1 where there's quotations around the phrase, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. Again, we're not exactly sure what he's referring to, it, but likely seems to be the case that this was a phrase or something that they sent Paul. And so Paul is responding to this quotation. Now, what has likely happened here is that there has probably been in the church of Corinth, there had been some debate of people, of believers who were saying, no, no, even in the confines of marriage, husbands and wives should still be celibate. That even in marriage, where God designed sex to flourish, it should still be something that doesn't happen. They might have grown up, and maybe you grew up in a church that talked about how sex is reserved for marriage, and they talked about it in a way that made sex seem dirty or sinful or wrong. And so, again, these were a lot of these people were Jewish believers. Maybe they grew up in a context where they thought sex was bad. And so Paul is saying is simply this. While it is true that a man should not use a woman for sex, he should not be sleeping around, he should not be doing these things, while that is true, it is not true in the context of marriage. That in marriage, a man and a woman should be having sex with each other, they should be enjoying it, and it is a good thing for them to do. And so I want to say as we begin here, here's what we need to know as we're going to read this passage, simply this, that married, married sex should be frequent. Paul is essentially saying here, what he said, that each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. It should be frequent, it should be consistent, it should happen often. Now, this is going to look differently for different couples, depending on maybe uh, your, your, your schedule, how many kids you have at the house, how old they are, if there's, a, if there's a physical ailment that's prohibiting it. I'm not going to prescribe to you an amount or what that looks like. Although I would say this, that you should talk about it with your spouse, and it should happen in an agreed-upon way with some consistency and some frequency, that sex, married sex should be frequent. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. This is not me making it up because it sounds good and because I want to go home and hang out with my wife, right? That's what Paul <laughs> is saying here. Now, if you're a man, you might hear that and be like, well, I'm glad I'm here today. Like, let's do it. This is a good time. And while that's true, you should be excited about it. Let me just caveat by saying this. Uh, throughout Scripture, Ephesians chapter 5, other places, uh, we see that the, 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 the Bible seems to say that men should lead their spouses and their families. Now, there is debate about what that actually looks like, 
But I, for me, I would say, for me, I think predominantly, one of the reasons that it plays out, or maybe the predominant way it plays out, is that men should be examples in the home. That they're not that they're perfect, not that they have it all together, but they lead their families by loving and serving their wife and their kids by putting their needs above their own, and that they give an effort of showing their spouses and their kids what it looks like to be a person of character and integrity and to love Jesus. This doesn't mean the man always gets it right. So, for example, let's say a man and his wife, his wife, the wife in the relationship is better with finances, better with the budget, but all the things. This does not mean that the man makes all the decisions, right? This does not mean that at all. It means they talk together, and even if this is an area of weakness for the husband, maybe he's a big spender and he struggles in this area, what this means is that even in that, that there is an attempt by the husband to honor the budget, by to, to lead by example of not buying things all the time that they simply want, that, that, that his wife can look at her husband who may not be as good at this area as she is, as he's at least giving an effort. He's leading by example of trying to honor the commitment they've made with their finances. This does not mean that men make all the decisions. It means that by example, if anything else, that they lead their family by showing their family what it looks like to put their spouse's needs above their own and to love and serve them. And so I would I'll caveat by saying this, that if you're married and you're a man and you are unhappy with your sex life, that is on you. Now, there are exceptions to that rule. Of course, there are unhealthy, unhealthy relationship. Maybe there's abuse going on, that sort of thing. But generally speaking, it has been 100% my experience that if there are sexual frustrations in a marriage, it is on the husband. Because what, what happens here, right? That you and I should be leading and loving our spouse. And as we do that, uh, th- not that we're perfect, but typically you, you, know, you know this to be the case, right? That as your wife feels loved and cared for, sex is more likely to happen. And so if you are uh, f- frustrated or upset by the lack of frequency, the lack of, of the amount of times that it happened, I would say this. First of all, have you communicated with your spouse what you would like this to look like? And secondly, are you living and loving and serving your spouse? It's not, that's not to say that it's always going to happen that way, but typically the more love your spouse feels, the more love your wife feels, the more likely, just being honest, she is to have sex with you. And so if you're frustrated with the amount of sex in your marriage, men, what are you going to do about it? It's probably pointing to a deeper issue that needs to be addressed, and you need to take the lead on bringing up that conversation and doing what, it needs, what needs to be done to fix the situation. Again, married sex should be frequent. That is what Paul says, and he's going to continue in verse 3 by saying this. He says, A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. There it is. In it. It's a duty. It's something that needs to be happening. Verse 4. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Now, when we read this, we, in our culture today, we could be like, mm, I don't like that he says that. It's my, I get to do whatever I want to do. I don't need to submit or do anything to anybody. What Paul is saying here is he's painting a picture of what God said in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where you have the, the first marriage between Adam and Eve. And what does God say? That the husband will leave his parents and become one flesh with his wife. And so when he says that you are mutually submitting and loving and fulfilling the desires of one another, that it's not just about you, that you and your spouse are actually one, and so you're loving each other, you're putting each other first. Now, what's interesting about these verses is the first part of verse 4 where he says this, that a wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In this culture, they would have thought, no duh, right? In this culture, women were often seen as second-class citizens. Even in court, their testimony, they couldn't even give a testimony. It was seen as not valid. This would have assumed in, the, in their, just the Roman, Greco-Roman culture at large, the world at that time, that women obviously are not as good as men. So, of course, she doesn't have a say. Whatever the man says goes. 
But then he says this, and personally, I would have loved to have been in the Corinthian church when they read this sentence for the first time. He says this, in the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Now today, if you're a husband, you're like, amen to that, brother. That sounds good, right? But back then, you would have been like, I'm, I'm not quite sure about that. What he's saying here is this. This is not a, your spouse must do whatever you want your spouse to do. And if not, then there's an issue there. He's not advocating abuse. He's not advocating, you know, powering, domineering over one another. This is why it's important to read scripture as a whole, because you see that husbands and wives are to love, and especially men, to lay down their white life for their spouse. But what he is saying is that there is a oneness to it, that this phrase would have been absolutely radical to first century, even for much of human history, that the wife has just as much say over what goes on as the husband. It's not the husband saying whatever he wants goes, that the wife can even say to the husband, let's get it on. And the husband's like, all right, let's get it on, right? And you're like, that sounds good. I would love for that to happen. We're going to talk about how to, have, how, to, how to make that happen more in just a minute, right? But what he's saying here is this, that husbands and wives should be what? Having sex and having sex frequently for the good of their marriage and for the good of one another. And here's ultimately why uh, Paul would say that marriage sex should be frequent. Here's why. Because who doesn't want frequent sex? No, I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. Here's why. Because sex is an indicator of the health of your marriage, right? Sex is the indicator of the health of your marriage. And you know this, right? You know when you, when you and your spouse are having less sex than you normally do, that there's probably an issue there. Uh, Christina has, and I don't know, uh, husbands, if your wife is the same way, or maybe it's flipped, maybe your wife, your husband's like this, but Christina has this thing that she calls the love tank. And basically, when the love tank is full, the sex is more frequent, the sex is better. And you know the difference, right? You know the difference, right? Here's the thing about the, the, uh, the love tank. It's invisible, and only she can see it. And so when the love tank isn't full, it's my job to fill it, but if, I don't, but if it's not full, how, I can't, you know, how do I not know it's full? It's because I can't see the stinking thing, right? However, I can tell where the love tank is based on how, how our intimacy is going, right? Oftentimes, sex is an indicator of the health of your marriage. When your marriage is strong, when you're communicating, when things are going well, typically, you're having more sex or more consistent sex, whatever that looks like for you and your spouse, but when you're not, it's an indicator that there are problems, that there are things that are going wrong. And again, I will say this again, oftentimes it's because the man is not leading and loving and serving his wife, that there is an issue. I can't tell you how many times I've seen or have had other people talk to me about how men are frustrated that their wife isn't, you know, they don't have a sex as often, they don't do these things. But what's happening is there's issues in their marriage that the man is not resolving and they're blaming it all on their wife's not willingness to have sex instead of the man unwillingness to love and lead his wife. And so I, want to, I just want to read this verse really quick. 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 7. Peter was one of the foundational leaders of the early church. Chapter 3, he's talking about wives and husbands. Here's what he says in verse 7. He says, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner. Now, there's the debate there what he means. It is my belief that Peter is saying, when he says weaker partner, he's just talking about physically, especially in this culture that it was written, right? Men are typically stronger than women, and so they could be abusive, they could be domineering. So he's like, even though you're the stronger party physically, you're not to treat them as less than. He says this, continuing on, here's what you're supposed to do instead. Showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. 
Now, why do I share this verse? Uh, we do not understand, you know, there's, there could be a lot of reasons why God is not answering a prayer that you have. It could be something going on in your life. It could be a sin issue. It could be because he wants something better for you. But somehow, in some way, Peter seems to say, Scripture seems to say that there are cases where God will not hear the prayers of husbands. Why? Because they are not, he's not treating his, husband, or his wife with love and respect and care. In other words, this is why it's important for us to understand uh, that our sex lives are an indicator of the health of our marriage, right? If you're not having as sex as often as you would like, or there's a decrease in frequency compared to what it normally is, men, what are you doing about it? Are you not loving and caring for your spouse? Because that has major implications beyond just the intimacy between your spouse. But again, sex is an indicator of how your relationship is going. And so it matters. And if that's true, that we should have frequent sex, and that it is an indicator of how, how our relationship, how our marriages are going, here's what I would say we need to do. Now, this isn't mind-blowing. This isn't like a cool, like, I can't believe you thought of that. This might sound quite boring, depending on who you are. But this is as practically as I can say, here's what we need to do if sex needs to be frequent. That you and your spouse need to commit to an agreed upon sex schedule. Again, I'm not trying to cross the line here. I'm not trying to be provocative. I'm just trying to be practically honest as much as I can. That you and your spouse need to uh, uh, commit to an agreed upon sex schedule. Again, what I've seen so often is that there are frustrations between the man and his spouse, oftentimes the man, but not always, and the frequency of the intimacy of the relationship because they're upset over expectations that were never communicated, right? And so the husband wants to have more sex, or even the wife wants to have more sex, but they've never sat down and talked about what they want this to look like. And so there's unmet expectations, which leads to frustration. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't, that, that you should, that you should put on your calendar, we're going to have sex these nights, but I'm also not saying you shouldn't, right? You might be thinking, putting sex on a calendar, that sounds unromantic. But you know what sounds even more not romantic? Not having sex at all, right? And so for you, that might, might just be, here's how often we would like to see this happen, or here's we're actually going to put it on the calendar. And just to show you that putting it on the calendar is not a terrible idea, what do you think when you have date night on your calendar, especially if you have kids, what do you think date night means? It often means you go to dinner, go to a movie, you do something, but you're going home and you're finishing the date a certain way, right? <laughs> Oftentimes, guys, you're like, let's go on a date, date night. That's awesome. And you know how it's going to end, but it doesn't make it any less enjoyable. In fact, it actually makes it better because you know what's coming, right? So you can commit to an agreed upon sex schedule. Maybe put it on your calendar because again, the, se- the amount of sex, the frequency of your sex in your marriage is an indicator of how, the, your, the, how your relationship is doing. And so because of that, because Christina and I, for example, are clear about what we want this to look like, when things are not going, maybe we've been busy or whatever, so, so it's been, our intimacy has not been as frequent as it should, even because she knows what we want this to look like. Sometimes on Friday, if I'm home or on Saturday, we have a one-year-old named Roman when he's napping, and Finley, our four-year-old, doesn't nap, but she has quiet time. Sometimes we'll put, Finley's quiet time happens when Roman's nap time is, but mommy and daddy aren't napping, right? It's the time to make up for what we missed, right? And the only reason that happens is because we've clearly communicated what we want our marriage to look like, and so we know when it is lacking that it could cause issues in other areas. And so I would just say, commit to an agreed upon sex schedule. And again, men, if there is an issue, if this is an issue in your marriage, you're like, man, my wife would never do this then you need to talk about what the issues are in your actual marriage. You maybe need to see a counselor. You need maybe to be honest with other people. But you can tell, you know, if you have not had sex in months, years, if you live, I mean, if it is not happening in the way that it used to happen, you know that there is an issue and you need to address that issue. That is why sex is really important. In fact, Paul would continue by saying this in verse 5. 
He says, do not deprive one another. Again, what is he saying? Have sex, except when you agree, agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. When he says, uh, except for you, when you devote yourselves to prayer, uh, what he's likely referencing there is there are a few times in the Old Testament where certain people, God would say, hey, don't have sex for this amount of time for some purification reasons. Uh, but other than that, you should be doing it, right? And so basically saying for us, unless there's a reason for, for like prayer and growing closer to God, I'm not sure what that would be in our context, just to be honest, you should be having sex, right? And so what he's saying there is that there must be a specific reason why you and your spouse are not being intimate. It could be a healthy reason, it could be traveling, it could be whatever, but if it, it, there needs to be a reason for it and it needs to be short. So again, if there is issues with your marriage that are leading you and your spouse to have less sex, you need to address that issue. Why? Not just because God wants sex to be something that you enjoy, that's life-giving, and that brings you two together. Together, but because you will also be tempted to sin if you are not doing it. You are more likely to have an affair, to fall away from your spouse if sex is not an important part of your relationship. It does not mean, of course, that affairs do not happen in healthy marriages, but they are much less likely to happen because if you're having frequent sex, it often means that your marriage is generally going well as well. And so that is what Paul is saying here. Now, to be clear, Paul is not saying this as a concession. In other words, he is not against sex. What he is against is sexual immorality. And so he wants spouses to have frequent sex, to have good sex. But even more than that, if you were here last week, if you are a follower of Christ, your body, your physical body is part of Christ's body. And so sexual immorality brings shame and sin to Christ's body. And Paul wants to avoid that. And so he said, enjoy your spouse and don't look for that elsewhere for other people to give you what they were not designed to give you. Right? And so here is why ultimately you and I should be honest and maybe even commit to an agreed-upon sex schedule if you're married. Because temptation decreases where love increases. Right? If you are committed and disciplined to having a strong relationship with your spouse, you are much less likely to fall into sin. That's the point. Now, what's interesting to me is, uh, well, not interesting, but, you know, every so often people will be like, hey, Dylan, that was a great message on Sunday. You know, that was great, whatever. And uh, when it comes to messages, like, I, that's encouraging to me. But ultimately, like, what I really care about is people growing closer to Jesus or people taking practical steps from the message and applying it to their life. And so Sunday after the service, when someone says, hey, Dylan, great message, what I'm thinking is, I love that you said that, but, like, I don't really know, and often I will never know, right? It's only a good message if it's actually impactful for people. However, this message, I'm excited to announce, we'll actually know if it made a difference, because in March, if the nursery has more kids, I'll know that we took this to heart, okay? That's nine months if you're like, June, July, well, it's nine months from now, right? If we actually do this and there's more kids, that's awesome. That's awesome, but temptation decreases where love increases, that if we are committed to serving one another, to, to giving our lives to one another, we will see a difference in this area. That's what Paul's saying. Not only is sex to be enjoyable and life-giving, but it also keeps us from sin. And then he continues by saying this, the last part of the this, this section that we'll read this morning in verse 6. He says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. So what he's about to say, he's saying as a concession, not before. So he's not saying only have sex, not to sin. That's not what he's saying. He's saying what I'm about to say, I say as a commission, concession. This is not a command from God. This is just something that I want to share with you. Verse 7, I wish that all people were as I am. So Paul is a single man as he's writing this, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. What he's saying is simply this, that in response to the question, so in verse 1, when he says in the response to the matters that, that, that 
that I wrote to you about. He answers the question, but then offers his own suggestion. That, that's not simply this, that Paul preferred singleness and affirmed its goodness. That he said singleness is a good thing, it is a wise thing, it is not a second, especially in, in church world today, oftentimes, if, and I know it's of it's best intentions, but we look at single people and we're like, oh, you need, a, you need a spouse, why aren't you married? As if there's something wrong with them, as if they're second-class citizens in the church because they're not married. But what Paul says here is that that's actually a really good thing. That's actually a, something that we should applaud and consider. And here's why, verse 8. He says, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them to remain as I am, but if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better, better to marry than burn with desire. So again, I just want to say this, that sex is not the ultimate. It will not fulfill you the way Christ can. So if you are single, you are not missing out in any way on what it means to be human. In fact, when we go around at the church and we ask, why are you single? According to Paul, the better question we should ask is, why are you even married? Why? In other, in other portions of Scripture, he talks about how when you're married, your, 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 uh, your interests are divided, your time is divided, all these things are divided, so you can't focus. Not that it's wrong, but you can't do as much as you can for, in your life and for the Lord if you're, if you're married as if you are single. And so he's saying it's actually a good thing. And then he, can, and then, then he continues by saying this, that if you do not have self-control, that you should actually marry that you should actually marry. If I were to be completely honest with you, here, here's what I would say. That if you are single, dating, and you're not married, and you're not having sex, you need to man up, and you need to get married. If I were to be honest with you, part of the reason why Christina and I got married between our junior and senior year, we, we, we were 21, uh, and it was the summer. Part of the reason we got married is because we, and maybe me more than her, I don't know, well, I wanted to have sex. Like, I wanted to have sex. And before you're like, that's a terrible idea. Let me just say this. You should not get married to have sex. That should not be your primary desire. But I would say this. If Christina and I were having sex, we would not have gotten married. We would not have gotten married because me as the man would have gotten everything that I wanted. And what Paul is saying this, do not do this. If you are in a relationship with somebody and you actually commit and care for them like you said that you would, why would you not marry them? Here's the thing about cohabitation in our culture. Cohabitation happens and the men, men and women have two different ideas of what's going on. A woman, they think it's a step towards marriage. They think it's a step towards commitment. For men, it's a step towards easier and more accessible sex. It is not a step towards commitment at any way because the man is getting what he wants. And I'm not saying this in a condemning way, but I am just saying this, that if you love Jesus and care for Jesus and care for the woman that you claim to care for in your life, then do what God would say to do and honor her and marry her before, if you want to have sex with her. And so you don't need to get married just to have sex, but according to scripture, it is a driving reason. It's part of the reason why we get married later and later in our culture today. And I'm not saying this in a condemning or judgmental way, is that we're all having sex already, so we're saying, what is even the point? So I'm not saying you should get married to uh, to have sex, but it is a part of it. Now, also for us, uh, if you know our story, Christina had dumped me a bunch, and so I was over that. That's part of the reason why I wanted to get married, but I wanted to have sex too. And here's why I say all this, because here's what we know. Often marriage is delayed by men. It's delayed by men. Their unwillingness to be a man, to put someone's needs and desires above their own. And so if that's you, if you're in a relationship with a man who is not committing to you, although he says that he would, stop having sex with him and see what he does. I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm not trying to judge you, but I'm saying stop giving him everything he wants. Make him be a man for his own good and see what he does and see what God might do for you. Now, if you're a man, you might be thinking this message did not as go as all as I thought in the beginning. But let me just say this. I am saying this for your good. 
that when we are the type of people that God has called us to be, our families are better, our marriages are better, our kids are better for it, and our cultures and our communities are better when men are loving, leading, and laying down their life for the good of others. And that is what Paul is saying here, that we are to give ourselves to one another. The marriage, and, and when we have sex, the marriage is a way of giving ourselves to one another for the good of each other and the good of God. And so all that to say, here is really... And the main point from this message this morning, and I'm not trying to be crass, I'm just trying to be honest, and that's this, that if you want good sex, do it God's way. And even if you're not even sure about the Jesus thing, if you want better sex, do what he said. And to prove it to you, there was a study that just came out, I think, two weeks ago, and they studied thousands and thousands of couples across 11 different countries. The United States is one of them. And they, and, they, and they divided them up into three categories. One category was secular, what they defined as secular. In other words, couples that never, had no religious affiliation at all never went to church. The second category was what they called less religious. In other words, they went to church every once in a while, maybe once every couple of months, maybe Christmas and Easter. They would go maybe for a significant life reason, but they wouldn't typically, they weren't that committed. So that was less religious. And then the third category was highly religious. In other words, that people that, that committed to going to church regularly, that it was a regular part of their life. So they did this study, and they also separated not just couples, but by men and women. And here's what they found. Uh, the first thing they found was that when, they, 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 <clears throat> when it came to who was the most uh, satisfied in their relationship, it was highly religious married people, both the man and the women. Now, this is not to say that if you go to church, you're going to have a better marriage. What's likely happening here is they're doing some of the things that Paul has said. Like, typically, if church is important to you, Jesus is important to you. So loving people, committing people, putting their needs before your own, even if you're not perfect at it, typically is something that you desire. And so if you're, if you're committed to Jesus, it would make sense that you're committed to your spouse you have a better relationship. You're happier, you're more content because you're giving each other, you're, 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 giving, you're laying down your life, you're loving your spouse, you're committed to each other. But what they also found, which people thought was completely crazy, which, and I'll explain in a second why that's not the case at all, they also found this. They also surveyed how uh, satisfied they were with their sex life. And once again, they found that highly religious couples, both the man and the women, were much more uh, engaged and satisfied with their sex life than the secular people and the less religious people. Why? Here's why. Because God, what do we say all the time? That God designed sex to flourish in the context of marriage. What happens in a marriage? You have two people that, number one, are actually committed to one another. It's not just about what they can get from the relationship and say, no, I, I love you. I'm going to give my life to you. I'm not going to be perfect, but we are in this together. So it makes sense that when you have two people that actually love each other and they're not just in it for themselves, they have better sex. What also happens? Because God knows what he's doing. The reality situation is simply this. The longer you have sex with the same person, the better it gets. Right, because you know what, what pleases the other person, there's a deeper, deeper connection there. Right? So it would make sense that God's way, that if sex is, is, is confined to a relationship where the man and the woman actually do care about each other, that they're committed to each other over a lifelong relationship where sex does get better when you're actually doing it with the same person, you're going to have better sex. That's just it. That is why God designed sex to be something that gives us life, helps us flourish, but it can only happen if we do it God's way. And so again, I'm not saying this to condemn anybody. I'm not saying this to make anyone feel guilty. I'm just saying that Jesus says, follow me and I will give you life. If we follow God's design for sex, we'll have less regret, less pain, less hurt, and we'll experience life to a degree, much better to a degree than we would without him, right? That is why Jesus came. And what's so interesting to me about all of this, we talk about Jesus and tying this back to the gospel. What did Jesus do? 
He came and he did what? He gave down his life. He gave his body for us. That Jesus did not, account, did not uh, think that equality or did not strive to make equality with God something to be grasped. He laid down his life for us. This is why in Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about how marriage, how marriage is a mystery and it represents the gospel. That sex itself represents the gospel. That you have two people loving and giving themselves to one another and in mutually enjoying one another, not about their own interests, but about the other person's. This is what Jesus did. He came, as we're going to celebrate communion in just a minute, he came and gave his body for us, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, because he loved us so much that he wanted to give us grace, forgiveness, and a relationship with him. And I'm not, not to be too crass here, but the sexual experience between a man and a woman is just but a shadow of the pleasure that we will feel in God's presence. It is a mystery of the love that God has for us, and it is a representation of what the gospel is, that Jesus came, gave his life for us, even if we didn't deserve it, even if we screwed up, even if we fall short, that we don't honor God with our sexuality to make him love us more or to get something out of him, but simply so that we can experience life the way that he designed it. Again, this is not for anyone to feel condemned. I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty. I just want you to know that there is grace, forgiveness, and mercy for you at the foot of the cross. That is why Jesus came. And if you want God, good sex, you should do it God's way. And again, not, to be, not so you can feel guilty if you don't, but that you can actually experience sex to the degree in which God created, which is good and life-giving and love-filled and joy-filled for you if you actually follow God's design for it. That is why he designed it, to be a mystery, to show us who God is, but also to be a way for us to enjoy and love one another. Remember, Jesus came to give us his life. He gave his body for us so that we could come and that we could follow him, not because we deserve it, because of what he has done for us. It points to our sex lives in a mysterious way, point to the goodness of who God is, the grace that he has given us when he laid down his body for us so that anyone who trusts and follow him can experience the life that he gives. Remember, if you want good sex, do it God's way. Don't take my word for it. That's what Paul said. <laughs> so let's pray. Jesus